This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. When I was 21 years old, I moved to Santiago, Chile. I, I went there probably for a lot of reasons, trying to find myself or something like that. I also moved there because I really wanted to learn to speak Spanish. And I could tell you a lot of funny stories about that, that time in my life, but there's this one particular moment that stands out in my mind as exemplifying much of my experience there. So I had signed up for this miming workshop. Miming, like Charlie Chapman, white face, black clothes, miming. I know, it's, it's a whole other story, but bear with me. I was one of five students in this class. I was the only foreigner, the only non-Chilean, and the only non-Spanish speaker. But I gotta say, I did pretty well. I mean, out of the five students, I was probably the best. And at the end of the six-week workshop, the instructor, who was one of these philosophical guys who would say, action is more important than words, miming is a way of life, well, he wrote each of us a personalized letter instead of giving us a certificate or a diploma. And in this letter, he would praise us for our accomplishments and encourage us to improve in, in our miming skills, you know, where we're, where we're lacking. And in my letter, he first of all said that he was astounded by my incredible balance and my motoric skills. Two things that he said were essential to being a good mime. But the very last line of this letter is, is what cracked me up. I still have this letter solely for this very last line. He said, Lisa, tú siempre estás observando, sin hablar. Parece que tú entiendes la verdad, que la acción es la madre de todo. You're always observing without talking. It appears as if you understand the truth that action is the mother of all things. He said this as if he thought I had been doing this in a very spiritual and reflective way, that I had been trying to become one with the mime, observe in silence, then act. I observed without speaking because I couldn't speak. Not by choice, by circumstance only. I mean, I didn't understand half of what was being said. I mostly got by just by imitating whatever my peers were doing in the moment. So as the instructor called out some command in Spanish, I would wait just a split second, watch as my fellow students began to move or position themselves to form a line or to freeze in mid-stride, and then I would just follow along and do whatever they did hoping that the instructor would not call on me or ask me any questions. I mean, it was pretty funny, actually, in retrospect. But at the time, it was also kind of a painful, disappointing thing. I'm where there is nothing, and nothing is the kingdom of rebirth. Learning a second language is really hard. Or at least, it feels that way. Sarah Allen is a statistician in Northern Ireland, and she recounts to us her own struggles trying to learn French in France when she moved there after college. One, one thing that I did find um, interesting, I found it was really hard initially to express myself, to express humor in another language, like to be sarcastic and to express any kind of humor. That was really difficult. And I remember saying like in French, um, I am really funny. I am a very funny person. <laughs> and just And trying to just be like out of frustration that like I just, I couldn't, respond I couldn't really I didn't feel like I was myself you know I didn't feel like I could really just make kind of snarky comments about things because I didn't know how to do it in another language and that was a real challenge for a long time who even knows what I was saying in French it's really scary to think about 
Um, I also never felt like I could really connect emotionally. It was almost like I had this little barrier between me and the people that I was with when I was speaking French. It was like I could um, express all the emotions, but they weren't, I didn't feel the emotions. Like I remember breaking up with my boyfriend at the time and of course it was sad and all the things, but it was also like three steps removed because I was thinking about how to say all the things and you're just like, I don't have a really huge selection of words to use, you know? And also I don't really emotionally connect with any of the words. <laughs> it's like, we are not together anymore. There you go. I don't, I don't know, do you get it? <laughs> as far as my own struggles in Spanish, well, that year living in Chile and the years after that, I really threw myself into learning the language. I even went on to move to Mexico for a year. I bought music with Spanish lyrics, I would memorize all the words, listen to it, sing along. I would record real-life conversations with Spanish speakers so that I could later go back, slow it down, rewind it, replay it, until I could understand it and say those things myself. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but when I was at my house alone, I would practice made-up conversations in Spanish. Like, conversations that I could potentially have, conversations in which I envisioned that I was at a party or a bar, and I was telling someone about what I studied or my work, what kind of music I listened to. I did actually eventually become pretty fluent, but it felt like this was only after many many, many embarrassing moments. After many times of being the brunt of jokes as a stupid foreigner, and moments of loneliness and, and even fear sometimes of being discovered as I laughed and nodded, oftentimes without actually understanding what was being said. Learning my first language was not this hard. Not by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, think about it. It wasn't really that hard for any of us. At least, it didn't feel that way. If you're listening to this, you've learned at least one language. So, how? How do we do it? On this first episode of An Inexact Science, we explore language learning. Now, we could go in a lot of directions with this, but for this hour, we will specifically ask how we learn our language at the moment when most all of us do it, as a child. We'll ask how children learn language and whether it's easier for them than for adults, and if so, why? Do they have brains that are more malleable, or do they use strategies that we somehow lose in adulthood? What are the ingredients for language acquisition? We'll also, at the very end of this episode, begin to explore how language learning can be undone, if and how we might lose our language, be it a first or a second. Here we go. He says the water drips and wakes him every night at four o'clock and ever since she ran. Children are expert learners of language, right? So they learn it seemingly easier than we do as adults. Why is that the case? If you think about it, it really is quite amazing. A child goes from this. This is a child about 12 months of age at the cusp of speaking his first words to this. They went inside for a drink. They went back out, took an This is a child who's five years old. My name's Benjamin and I'm five years old. Now, I know, his storyline is lacking, the plot is not quite clear, but his syntax is almost near adult-like. 
and he didn't have to record conversations, play them back, slow them down. He simply learned it by being in it. Children begin to say their first words around 12 months of age. By 18 months, close to their second year, they may be stringing words together, saying simple two-word phrases like "want milk," "more juice." And then the incredible part is that by three years of age, they are speaking full-blown sentences. Okay, so they are saying whatever their little minds are wanting to say. They're embedding clauses inside of clauses using the past participle, present progressives. Then by four or five years of age, their syntax is near adult-like. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a whole literature on the kinds of mistakes that four and five-year-olds still make in grammar, but for the most part, they are speaking like adults at that age. Why is that the case? Do children have something special that allows them to rapidly and quickly pick up their first language? Now, this has actually been a question and a focus of study for a long time in psychology. To understand this, I went straight to one of the top cognitive scientists in the field who studies language, Dr. Linda B. Smith. Hey, Linda. Come on in. She's a professor at Indiana University in Bloomington. She's been studying language yeah, and some other things for so the past 30 years. Linda Smith. I'm in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University, Bloomington. I should also say she just won the Rummel Hart Prize, which is basically like winning Time Magazine Person of the Year in Cognitive Science. And I study how young children break into language learning. I'm particularly interested in that period, oh, beginning in late infancy, from before the first birthday, but up until they're two, two and a half years of age, when they go from seeming not to know language to being able to talk and argue with you. And when I asked her what the trajectory of a child's language development is, here's what she had to say. Can you explain the trajectory of from birth to that point when they are able to argue with you? If you were asking me this question six years ago, I would say that we know that as children are listening and being carried around and talked to, that they're picking up some aspects of language, the sound structure, the meanings, maybe finding a few words, but that word learning really appears to begin at about 12 months, when not only do they show some understanding and receptive knowledge, but they actually start using words. At first, just one or two, then they slowly add more and more. Then they shift to learning object names. And then once they got enough object names, they start adding verbs and sentences. It really does get very rapid fast. So at 12 months, you might say children might know five or six words. And then by the time they're three, probably well over a thousand, okay? Maybe even 5,000 for some children. Now, I have to change that answer, though, <laughs> because now we're sitting here in 2014, and although I said that babies prior to their first year are probably learning some stuff about language, the sound structure of their language, maybe how to segment a few words, there really is growing evidence that they may know much more about the language that they're going to be learning than we originally thought, much more about words, maybe even a bit about what words refer to, what classes of events individual words refer to. So we're right So she's now, basically saying this, look, we used to think in research that the real action started around 12 months of age, because that's when they're saying their first words. 
But what we know now is that language learning is happening well before 12 months of age. Are you thinking about particular studies when you say you have to revise a little bit of what you thought? Well, there were two recent studies that use a really interesting method. They put pictures in front of babies, like two at a time, and then they say a word. And children as young as six months tended to look toward the right reference. So Linda is talking about a study that was conducted by Ruth Tinkoff and Peter Jusick, a study that was published in 2012, and a study that was similar conducted by Daniel Swingley. In these studies, they use a procedure called preferential looking. Infants were shown pictures of body parts. So for example, a hand and a foot on a screen. While the infants were looking at those pictures, they would hear a phrase like, look at the foot. Infants at six months of age would look to the correct body part. This was astounding because, like Linda said, infants don't really start saying their first words until 10 to 12 months of age. But this study showed that infants, even though they're not saying words yet, they have some notion of what words go with what objects in the real world. Young babies, all the time they're sitting around in their little pumpkin seats watching the world and listening, are amazing statistical learners. I'm not doubting most of what we know, but I think we're on the edge of some breakthroughs in how learning might begin quite early. Not that they really know language like you or I do, but the way I kind of think of it is all that statistical learning going on, like the probability that, you know, elbow goes with elbows or nose goes with noses, is sort of laying a landscape that then when they really start talking, enables them to scale up very rapidly. Okay, so hold up. Linda keeps mentioning this thing called statistical learning. What exactly is that? The term has been used for decades in machine learning. It refers to the ability to look at a data set and pull out the correlations and regularities. The principles of statistical learning are everywhere. They're actually used in the algorithms for online marketing. So, for example, let's say that there's an online store that sells furniture, appliances, and clothing. Let's say that buyer number one goes to that online store and purchases a nightstand, a shirt, and a lamp. Buyer number two purchases a nightstand, curtains, and a lamp. Buyer number three, a refrigerator and a couch. Buyer number four, a nightstand and a lamp. Buyer number five, a nightstand, a cooking pan, and a lamp. In this very simplistic example with a very small sample size, you may have pulled out at least one regularity. People tended to buy more than one thing, but every time they bought a nightstand, they also bought a lamp. There was a 100% correlation. Now, the marketing team for that store might take that information and use it to target advertise. So now when a person goes to that site, clicks on the nightstand to purchase, a little advertisement comes up and suggests the lamp as well. Why? Because statistically speaking, people who like the nightstand also like the lamp. We figured this out through probability. Nightstands and lamps go together. Although this kind of data is typically monitored by computers, adult humans do this kind of learning. They do it over fairly large data sets, often without explicit knowledge that they're doing it. And you guessed it, infants can as well. (music) 
Dr. Jenny Safran has been a pioneer in understanding how infants statistically learn and how they use this kind of learning to acquire language. And she sat down with the Erica Wojcik to talk about it. I would be happy to say some sentences. (laughs) All right. My name is Jenny Safran. I'm a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I study how babies learn. So statistical learning sounds a lot fancier than it is. uh, All the term really refers to is the ability to pick up patterns and regularities uh, in, in our world. In the area of language, we believe that being able to pick up which words go together, which sounds go together, Uh, things like that, really simple patterns in your language would be a great way to start breaking into your native language and figure out how it works. In our early work in this area, which I did in graduate school um, with my mentors Dick Aslan and Alyssa Newport, we began exploring this idea in an area of language that seemed really uh, appropriate for it, and that is figuring out where words begin and end. Figuring out where words begin and end. Earlier, Linda was talking about infants going from not knowing what words mean to understanding what they refer to. So learning that the word hand means that five-fingered thing at the end of your arm, or that the word nose goes with that thing on your face. This is called the object-word pairing. But before you can tackle object-word pairings, you have an even more basic task to complete. You have to figure out which of the clusters of sounds in the speech stream are words. If I play you this speech stream, this is my good friend Swapna speaking Tamil, and I tell you that your task is to figure out which of those words that she's saying means puppy. Well, before you can guess at what word means puppy, you have to be able to parse and segment that stream and figure out what units of sound might actually be words. You figure out which units of sound, which clusters of syllables might be words, then you can guess which of those might mean puppy. This is how Ginny describes the phenomenon. When you know a language, you feel like you hear little spaces between words, like on the written page. But when you hear someone speaking an unfamiliar language, it sounds like they're just going blah, 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 like there's no spaces. And in fact, there aren't any. We don't talk like this. Nevertheless, babies quite early on in their first year begin to break into speech and figure out where words begin and end. And one way babies might do this would be by keeping track of simple patterns, figuring out which sounds go together to figure out where words begin and end. The study that was published in in 96, um, what what was the setup of that study and and what did you find? Jenny published a study in 1996 in the journal Science. It it has been one of the most influential papers in developmental psychology and in language acquisition in general. And here's how she describes it. What we did was we decided to make up a language that babies wouldn't already know, because we made it up, where the only way to figure out where words begin and end would be to keep track of which syllables went together. So babies heard something that sounded like this. They listen to this for a couple of minutes. It's really boring. They fortunately don't mind too much. And it contained words in it. Words were things like golabu and pabiku. But because there were no pauses or changes in pitch, very unnatural, the only way to figure out where those words begin and end is to keep track of which syllables follow one another with some regularity. So here's how the experiment was set up. 
infants would listen to a stream of speech for a few minutes. The speech stream contained made-up words that infants did not and could not know unless they tracked the probability of co-occurrences of those syllables. And this is what that sounded like. Yeah, I know, it's, it's kind of a weird robotic sound. But the question here was whether infants could track the statistics of the syllable pairings, the transitional probability. So the likelihood that the syllable boo comes after gola to form golabu versus the likelihood that the syllable p comes after gola to form gola p. It turns out in this speech stream that gola comes right before boo about 70% of the time. So essentially, gola predicts boo 70% of the time, kind of the way nightstands predicted lamps in our example of online shopping. And gola p, that co-occurrence, almost never happens. So based on the frequency of the pairings, it's likely that golabu is a word and that golapi is not. After hearing that speech stream, infants would essentially be tested on what syllable clusters were the words. And so can, can eight-month-olds do this? Apparently they can. <laughs> so if babies listen to this for a couple of minutes and then we test them on patterns uh, that predicted one another, uh, syllable sequences that went together in the speech they heard versus syllable patterns that went across word boundaries, they pretty reliably discriminate between those two different types of stimuli. Um, and uh, this effect has been replicated with lots of different types of materials in labs all over the world, um, even using methods that allowed researchers to go down in age to newborns. Um, so the ability to track these statistics seems to be uh, really fairly robust. That's right. Infants even younger have shown an ability to statistically learn the transitional probability of the syllables and to segment speech in this way. To learn more about how Jenny tested the infants in her task, you can find a bonus clip on our website at aninexactscience.podbean.com. Remember this? Adupar. Listen again and see if you can figure out at least one word in there. So did you pick out a word? Naikuti. It's actually the Tamil word for puppy. So listening to an actual language, you as an adult also use transitional probability to pull out the words. It seems that statistical learning may help infants break into their language. But even once you pick up on the word boundaries, you got to learn what those words mean. This is what Linda meant by infants learning that elbow goes with elbow. Elbow goes with elbows or nose goes with noses. This is the object word pairings we were talking about earlier. You have to get enough object names 
to really break into syntax and get multi-word sentences. The time between children's second and third birthday seems to be a really important moment for language. Children's vocabulary explodes. It really does get very rapid fast. So at 12 months, you might say children know five or six words. And then by the time they're three, probably well over a thousand. By some estimates, children are learning on average two to three new words a day. And for some children, they may be learning as many as 10 new words a day. And this is one of the reasons researchers have suggested that children might be special in their abilities to acquire language. So what exactly is happening that causes the vocabulary explosion? Linda actually did some pretty foundational work in this area. And she describes one phenomenon related to the vocabulary spurt. You take a typical kid and they go on a car ride and they see their first tractor. They're some city kid, not an Indiana kid. (laughs) And they see their first tractor in a field and people say, it's a tractor, 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 tractor. Kid is just hanging up the window looking at this thing. It is really cool. It's a tractor. The thing that is amazing about typically developing two-year-olds is it's highly likely from that point on that that child will recognize any tractor it sees. So maybe the first tractor is always a big green John Deere in the field. Well, it'll recognize the red tractor. It'll recognize the guy mowing his lawn in a little lawn version of a tractor. It'll recognize an antique tractor. And the evidence suggests that they do it by abstracting out a very abstract version of object shape. Not the specific detailed version, but an abstract version of object shape, which you might think of as a caricature of a tractor. And it enables them to rapidly learn words. One instance, and they seem to know the whole category. This strategy that children use is called the shape bias. You can actually see children doing this in the laboratory. So in the lab, you show a child an object that they've never seen before. You give it a name. You tell the child, this is a dax. Then you show the child some other objects. And you say to the child, find another dax here among these other objects. Children will look for the object with the same shape, not necessarily the same color or the same size or even the same texture. Linda's done a lot of work in this area, and she and her colleagues have even found that if you train children really, really early to have a shape bias, they will enter their vocabulary spurt a little sooner. That's certainly not to say that parents should do that. There's no evidence to date to suggest that having a really early shape bias would get you into better colleges later down the road. And children figure this out on their own. They don't really need explicit instruction to do it. But why would having a shape bias contribute to the vocabulary explosion? You see, words are not unique labels for individual items in the world. They are labels for entire categories. So in our language and in most languages, all four-legged things with a back that you sit in, they're all called chair. They're all members of the same category. So really what you're doing when you learn a word is learning a category label. And like Linda pointed out, these categories are frequently organized by their abstract shape. Once you figure out this trick that, hey, when I learn a label, it can actually be used for any item with the same shape, well then, it frees up a lot of resources. So you learn the word for the chair at your house, 
Then you go to grandma's house, you walk into the kitchen ready to learn new words, and your task for learning labels in that situation has been reduced and made easier because you know that you already have words for some of those items in that house. You don't need to spend your energy learning the unique name for every single item in grandma's house. That thing with four legs and a back that you sit in, it has the same name at grandma's house as it did at your own home. So you can more efficiently spend your time trying to learn the words for the object categories you don't already know. Okay, so, so far, none of what we've heard that infants and children do to learn their first language are things that adults don't do. In fact, we do all of the same things. We statistically learn, we know that categories are organized by shape. So the question still remains, why does it seem that infants learn language faster than adults do? It's not that they have skills that we don't have, unless they are doing these things better than we're doing them. Some researchers believe this might actually be the case that there's a critical period, a phase in early life when learning language is easier. Now, researchers don't completely agree on this, and it's still hotly debated. But there is some evidence that there may actually exist a critical period. The first piece of evidence comes from a rather unfortunate situation. It's the case of a young girl named Jeannie. She was found in Southern California in the 70s, and it appears that the first 13 years of her life, she was locked in a room with very little human contact. Officials in the Los Angeles suburb of Arcadia have taken custody of a 13-year-old girl, and they say was kept in such isolation by her parents that she never even learned to talk. It was believed that she didn't speak in part because she had very little language spoken to her. As unfortunate as the situation was, it presented a very interesting case study. Here was a person who did not have much language input during the first 13 years of life. Could this young person be taught language? Now, a lot of researchers were in on this, and they tried to teach Jeannie language. And she did actually get to a point where she could communicate, which is pretty amazing, right? She could communicate. She could learn words, and she could string them together. Let me see. The log? He a picture of a log. However, she never achieved full proficiency. Her syntax and her grammar were never actually native-like. Now, of course, there were issues with this case because Jeannie may have had other problems. She was severely abused, which may have also inhibited her ability to learn. It may also be the case that Jeannie had developmental delays even before any of this started. However, there is another study that seems to support the idea that there may be a critical period for learning language. It's a study that was done by Jacqueline Johnson and Alyssa Newport. It was conducted in 1989. In this study, they essentially took about 50 people who had learned English as their second language. Now, these were immigrants coming to the U.S. at different points in their life. They were coming from China and Korea. So some of these people had started learning English at three years of age. Some of them had started learning at 10, 15. Others started learning at 20 or 25 years of age. The question that Johnson and Newport asked was, did the age of exposure matter for how well you acquired and mastered English? They took these individuals and they gave them tests of grammar. So what they found was this. They found that there was a correlation between the age of exposure, so the age at which you started learning English, and your ability to master English. What that means is that a person who had started learning English around 10 years of age got a pretty good score on this oh, test. That's, that's 
pretty good. A person who had started learning when they were slightly younger, say age seven, got a slightly higher score on this yeah, test. B plus or like an A minus. However, people who started learning even earlier, at age three or so, they scored through the roof. They were native like. But what seems striking is that this only was true for the ages of three up to about fifteen. The people who started learning English after age fifteen or so, on average, did not learn the language as well. So, learn the language before adolescence. There's a pretty good chance that you'll be near native. Start learning after adolescence. You may never learn the language very well. This seemed to suggest that there is a critical period, and not only a critical period, but a spectrum. So the earlier you start, the more likely you are to reach native-like proficiency. Both of these studies seem to suggest that there is something happening early on in the brain that makes language easier to learn. There is, alternatively, a different perspective on this. What if it's not just what's happening in the brain, but also what's happening in the environment? So can I get you to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Valerie Cross. I have been teaching English as a second language for about five years. She's an English teacher who works with adults in California. I speak English, Spanish, a little bit of Quechua. She herself speaks a few languages. And the language of love. <laughs> Which has been the hardest to learn. Love, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> she says there is a wide variation in how well adults will acquire the language, but she has a slightly different take on why that may be the case. So obviously, children learn their first language by immersion,、uh, or even a second language by immersion, pretty easily. As adults, I think there are a lot of things going on there that are just different from children learning in an immersion context. For one, the input very different. Children receive scaffolded input. People talk to them slower, which actually could happen if people recognize that you're a foreigner. They might talk a little slower for you, but they're not gonna speak motherese or something like that. So motherese being the way that adults speak to small children, they change their pitch, their intonation. They make the input very clear. So if A mom or an adult is trying to ask a child something.、Um, they might say it like, "Would you like some more milk?" Whereas for an adult, we might simply say, "Do you want more milk? Do you want milk? Do you want more milk?" Adults speaking to children, they slow down their speech. You know, they use different intonation patterns.、Uh, they stretch out syllables to help children. Understand them. They get a lot of visual aids, right? So adults are pointing to the milk and saying milk. And you have a duck on your shirt. You like some more milk? So adults aren't getting that same like scaffolded input.、Um, Hi, baby. I see that. Do you want some more milk? I see the duck. Do you want more milk? Do you want some more milk? You have a duck. Do you want milk? Do you want more milk? Do you want milk? Do you want more 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 milk?
Uh, we're just making the input more comprehensible for children, which is something that, in general, uh, if we're learning a second language as adults, uh, we're not going to get that kind of input. So my name is Brandon Roy, and I was a graduate student at the MIT Media Lab in a group called Cognitive Machines. You know, one idea is that caregivers are are some sense sensitive to the child's, you know, competence, you know, where is he at uh, developmentally. So I worked on a project um, uh, that we called the Human Speechome Project. And uh, speechome is a made-up word. Uh, it's a combination of speech and home. And um, the, the basic goal of the project was to study one child's early, early language development and early word learning um, from birth to age three but to do so in a, in a natural setting, in the, chi in the child's home. Uh, the child is Professor Deb Roy's son, who uh, was my advisor at MIT, and his wife. And it was their first child. And before the child was born, we had installed <laughs> a custom audio and video recording system throughout the entire house. So there were 11 cameras and 14 microphones that were embedded in the ceiling. You know, we collected uh, roughly 10 hours a day for three years. So all of that added up to the largest set of recordings of one child's early experience. You know, he's immersed in this environment, he's hearing his parents, you know, say words. He's hearing those words in lots of different contexts. And we wanted to kind of look at a, all these different ways of characterizing the child's exposure to words. And the first thing that we did was for the three primary caregivers, that's the mother, the father, and the nanny, we just literally counted the number of words in their utterances by month, and we took the average, so that, that's um, one way of taking what's known as the MLU, or the mean length of utterance. You know, one idea is that caregivers are, are some sense sensitive to the child's, you know, competence. Where is he at developmentally? So we were interested to see if there was some link between the actual words the child knew and the caregiver utterance lengths. Let's take a word that the child learned. Let's say the word is fish. And let's look at all the caregiver utterances that contain that word, and let's kind of divide those into two regimes, the sort of period of time before the child learns that word and the period of time after the child learns the word. So if we look at the utterances containing the word fish, let's say by the father, say five months before he learns the word fish, we'll compute the average length, and then four months before he learns that word, compute the average, uh, all the way through until, you know, say five or six months after he learns that word. What we found was actually pretty surprising was that it really brought into focus this really sharp, almost U-shaped curve. So caregiver utterances that contain a word the child learns are really, really long the farther, you know, before he produces the word. They're, they're pretty long and they make this steady drop and they literally bottom out at that moment um, or the month that the child produces the word. And then they bounce back up a little bit, just a little. So months before the child produces a particular word, all the caregiver utterances that contain that word, they're getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Children receive scaffolded in You know, as if they're anticipating him producing the word. Talk to them and when he does produce it, that's the point when those utterances are at their simplest and shortest. Which is something that, in general, if we're learning a second language as adults, uh, we're not going to get that kind of input. It, it seems to actually be the case that, that they are tuned in to, to something about what words a child knows. The input is different. 
The kind of linguistic input that a child receives when learning a language may be qualitatively different from the speech that an adult hears when trying to learn a language. So as Valerie mentioned, we often speak slower to children, we use high and low pitches to maintain their interest, and we use simpler sentences. And as Brandon Roy told us, in his own work with Dr. Deb Roy, caregivers may tune their speech to the child's knowledge, simplifying sentences surrounding words that the child is at the cusp of learning. This is not necessarily something we get as adults. So what we have thought of previously as a critical period in language learning may not be solely dependent on the brain's plasticity or receptiveness to language. We can also think about this critical period as being potentially an artifact of how the environment is scaffolding young children, a window of time that occurs from birth to early childhood in which the environment may make language acquisition more accessible and easier. But the environment and the input cannot be the whole story. We know this anecdotally from instances in which adults learn a second or third language fairly well. And we can also see this in research in the laboratory. For example, let's go back to that Johnson and Newport study. Remember, that was a study where they looked at the relation between the age of exposure to a language and later language proficiency. And although it's true, they did find that on average, the people who were exposed to English early in life had a better shot at learning it to native proficiency this did not mean that people who were exposed at older ages didn't learn the language well. Johnson and Newport simply found that there was no correlation of language proficiency with age of exposure past adolescence. So what that means is a person who was exposed to English for the first time at age 17 could have learned the language very well, while another person who also was exposed to English for the first time at 17 didn't learn it as well. There was a wider variation in how well a person could learn the language after adolescence. But if you look closely at their data, there were in fact individuals who were exposed to English after adolescence and still learned the language very well. They even learned it as well as some of the individuals who started learning at age three. There must be some additional factors to acquiring language. It's not all about learning it at a critical period of plasticity in the brain or about learning it during a window of environmental scaffolding. Age and input are not the whole story. So can I get you to introduce yourself, say your name again? And I talked to Monica Schmidt about this. Okay, my name is Monica Schmidt. I work at the University of Essex in the UK. She um, studies multilingualism and she's an expert in language attrition, how a person might lose their language. My native language is English. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Let's start over. <laughs> My native language is German. Um, I speak English, I speak Dutch, and I speak French. So I asked her what accounts for the individual variation and how well one learns a language in adulthood. She told me about an interesting group of language learners whose characteristics may give us some insight. I mean, people tend to think that um, second language learning is better and is easier if you start at a very early point in life. But um, there has recently been a lot of research on what we call heritage languages. So that is um, people who actually grow up speaking one language in their home with their parents and maybe their siblings, but um, speaking another language in the environment. person whose parents are Korean and who then grows up speaking Korean in the home, that person is a heritage speaker of Korean. 
and Korean is in fact his or her first language. That person, however, then goes to school and may learn a different language outside of the home, potentially English, and English is then the child's second language. Monica says that looking at the heritage language learners, you can find wide variation in how well people will learn it and speak it in adulthood. If you look at families um, with several children where the parents make a very strong and, and really, really sort of sustained effort to teach their children their own first language in this second language environment. Very often you find that in, in the end, when all of them are grown up, there's a huge difference in the level of um, proficiency that each individual of those three kids who basically grew up under the same circumstances at how good they are when they are adults. You take a handful of people who've all started learning Korean from birth, but who live in an English-speaking country and who also learn English at school. And those Korean heritage speakers, there'll be a huge variation. Some will speak Korean like a total native speaker, and others will only be able to hold simple conversations um, in it. So age in itself is not enough. It's not enough to have a really early start. There have to be other things that go into it as well. Um, whether it is a necessary condition in order to become native-like, to start learning the language before puberty, is a very, very hotly disputed topic. And um, people, I think people would cheerfully strangle each other over that question. Um, I think what um, I think what really is necessary, um, or I think what really is key, is is attitude. I think what um, um, I think people would cheerfully strangle each other. I think what um, um, I think what really is necessary. Um, or I think what really is key is, is attitude. We are everyday robots on our phones In the process of getting home Looking like standing stones Attitude may be the missing factor, that X factor. I want you to understand why Monica thinks this. Remember, heritage speakers have all the right ingredients for learning a language to native proficiency. They start young. They get the right kind of input as children in a home with caregivers who may be scaffolding and helping them in learning the language. Yet there are individuals who don't learn it very well. One argument, and I think it's right in what Monica may be saying, is that these people go off to school and start learning their second language and find that that language may be more useful. Their friends may speak that second language, their teachers speak that language. They have social pressures to fit into the new culture that they're living in, going to school in, and they want to learn that second language, possibly even more than they want to learn their native cultural language. There's something here that we really don't understand yet, how this works. And I think attitude is a very important component. Motivation for learning a language is key and may also explain why adults who try to acquire a second language later on in life have such a difficult time. 
Once an adult is ready to learn a second language, say, when you go off on that study abroad or try to take a class in high school or college, you already have a first language. It's a language that all your social interactions are performed in, the people you love most speak that language, you work, read, and learn in that language, you already know one. So the motivation for learning a second language may be much lower. This would also apply to thinking about children learning a language. A child entering into the world has no language. They are human though, and therefore very social. They want interactions with caregivers. They need to communicate more nuanced desires. So the stakes are high and motivation is high for acquiring language. Remember, Monica's main area of expertise is in language attrition, how someone might lose a language. Um, so I look at, um, I have so far mainly looked at migrants who grew up largely monolingual, people who left their home country after puberty and then went to live in a different linguistic environment. And I looked at what happens to their first language and what makes the first language change and deteriorate in such a situation. So can you give us a little background? She says that in fact it is possible for a person to lose their first language. However, she's found that if people learn that first language very well and do it before adolescence, they actually are fairly resilient. Loss is a very vague term, of course. I mean, what we imagine when we hear losing the first language means, oh, people end up um, unable to communicate or maybe even unable to understand their first language. I have never come across a case where that really was was what happened. People who learn a language early and speak it in their childhood and through the first few years of adolescence, they can go decades without ever speaking that language again, and it will never go away completely. My very first study that I ever did was um, I looked at German Jews. So I looked at um, people who had fled from Germany in the 1930s um, and who had lived in English-speaking countries ever since. People who claimed, so they have, they might have left in the late 30s and then they were interviewed in the late 90s. So that was 60 years between the point where they migrated and the point where they were interviewed. And some of them really said, now I never ever in all that time spoke German anymore. Um, and I found that in these interviews, there were some people who didn't, they didn't sound like they were native Germans anymore. Some of them had a very strong English accent. Some of them um, clearly were sometimes struggling finding the right vocabulary. They made grammatical mistakes. They made morphological mistakes. And still they were able to sit down and tell somebody the story of their life. I mean, I I don't really think you can call that loss, right? Right. First of all, the thought of even losing my ability, for example, in English is just, I I can't even comprehend that. But then second, exactly what you're saying, this seems more of a testament of, wow, someone could stop speaking their language for 40 years and still come back and sit down and have a conversation. And it's almost a testament to, if it's in there, it's kind of in there. Yes. (laughs) So um, I think it's quite clear that there is such a period there where the first language stabilizes to the extent that it becomes totally impervious to, or not totally, but largely impervious to forgetting. Sure. 
However, Monica says the story is a little complicated. If a person learns a language not so well, say for example, they start speaking it early on, but only for a few years, then they move to a new country and stop speaking that first language altogether, well, those people may actually lose it eventually. So it's a balance between the age and how well that language was learned in the first place. Interestingly, Monica told me that this also applies to learning and losing a second language, even one that may have been learned after adolescence. Clearly, I would think people lose their second language pretty easily. Or do you know if that's true? Let's say you spoke it for five to ten years, immersed in that country, and then you didn't speak it for 20 years at all. I mean, do people completely lose it or... So everybody thinks that, you know, it's like, oh, I had French in school, but I've forgotten it all. That kind of thing. The interesting thing is that that appears not to be true, at least mm. not in any any sense close to what people normally think. There is some research. The first study, a really, really sort of big study, was done in 1984 by someone called Barrick. She told me about a foundational study conducted by Harry Barrick. And he did a very, very large cohort study looking at proficiency in a second language. I think it probably must have been Spanish. I can't quite remember. So Beric and, and his colleagues tested people in their proficiency of Spanish at several different points. Remember, again, these are people who have learned Spanish as a second language. He tested them when they were at their peak in the language, when they were learning it and actively speaking it, possibly even living in a Spanish-speaking country. And then he tested them a few years down the road after they had stopped speaking so it So what actively. happens is within the first three years, you lose a certain proportion of what you know. And it seems to be that no matter how proficient you were at that time, you lose more or less the same amount in absolute terms. So somebody who was very good and somebody who was only moderately proficient, they will lose in absolute terms the same amount, which means that for the person who was very good, it's a much smaller proportion of their total original knowledge. And then within the next three years, they lose a little bit more, but, uh, but it's um, kind of proportionally less than what they've lost in the first three years. People do, in fact, lose that language. And a lot of the loss happens in the first three years of not actively speaking it. But here was the really interesting part and encouraging part. And anything after that appears to be stable for at least 25 years. Barak co coined the term permastore for that. What is it called again? Permastore, like permafrost. So you go to a country, you learn the language really well, then you come back to your home country and stop speaking the language. Those three years after you come back is when you'll lose most of the language. What you lose is absolute amount, which for someone who knows the language very well, proportionally speaking, may not be that noticeable. But for someone who didn't learn the language very well, that same absolute amount of loss it'll be proportionately more, and in fact, may represent all of the language. So again, your resistance to losing language obviously depends on how well you learned it in the first place. It, it does seem, I mean, yes, you know, you do get a little bit less fluent, you do get a little bit rusty. My gut feeling is that it's all still there and that it's yeah. just, it just needs a little bit a little bit of a push and a little bit of reactivating. What all this means is that once you've learned a language really well, be it through motivation, scaffolded input, or brain plasticity, once it's in there, it's like riding a bike. Of course you'll get rusty, but you can climb right back on. I mean, if I live to be 110, I'll still be able to speak Dutch. Unless, you know, my brain has gone completely geriatric. <laughs> Thank you.
thanks to Linda Smith, Anna Kostriva, Anita Rochowdery, Stephanie Dempsey, Vance Foster, Rachel De Gregorio, and Nicole Anderson. Thank you to Erica Borzik, Valerie Cross, Ariel Law, and Viridiana Benitez. Many thanks to the scientists who contributed to this episode, Linda Smith, Jenny Safran, Brandon Roy, and Monica Schmidt. The music that you heard in this episode came from Watch a Clan, Sarah Allen, Busman's Holiday, Jefferson Street Parade Band, Generation Power Strip, Selva Delmar, Toon Yards, Damon Alwyn, and Follies. A very special thank you to Swapna Jayaraman and Sarah Allen for helpful feedback. And thanks to you, the listener. You've been listening to an inexact science. You can find all the latest episodes, bonus clips, and teasers for An Inexact Science at the website, aninexactscience.podbean.com, or you can look for us in iTunes. Subscribe to us there, give us a rating, it'll increase our visibility. And on the next episode of An Inexact Science, religious belief. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. You know, religion in my in my family was not just one facet. However, this this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. It was and is life. When I was twenty, he appeared to me in a vision. That I mean, I knew even in my vision that he was the Messiah. He was God. I remember moments when I truly believed that I heard the voice of God. As a fact is, is that we we serve the Savior. Pretty much every culture on earth has religions, and maybe always has. There's two sides to this. So on the one hand, we know from looking at anthropology and looking at religion that people have these experiences all the time. And I saw in front of me his nail-scarred feet. And yet at the same time, from the perspective of of cognitive psychiatry in the Western world, they're deemed deeply unusual. Uh, I'm Justin Barrett. I'm the Thrive Professor of Developmental Science in Fuller's Graduate School of Psychology and the director of the Thrive Center for Human Development. Religious beliefs emerge from, you might think of it as the collaboration of a number of different psychological mechanisms. But I knew Jesus was real. And so I said, uh, these were my exact words, I said, Jesus, I know you're real. Uh, The idea that there can be some kind of direct communication from God or spirit. To believe that that there's this whole other realm that's unseen. And I confess I'm a sinner. The supernatural. And you ask Christ to give you that Why do people believe in gods? A god that is everywhere and omniscient. Why do they pray to these gods? And demons. Uh, Why do they conduct certain kinds of rituals? Angels. I was transformed. I could tell something had happened. It's ubiquitous. A part of me thinks that um, maybe those things are real and I've just shut myself off to them.